Good morning, y'all. Um, before I get started today, I'm going to go ahead and just have a time, uh, <clears throat> a prayer real quick for um, the devastation out in India. Um, just acknowledge that and uh, come before the Lord in that and pray for that. Uh, Lord, um, there's uh, a lot of, of groaning that comes from from morning, I think we just heard, you know, the words, God, I need you now. And so those words, I think, uh, can be placed in our lives in so many different scenarios and circumstances. And Lord, um, I'm mindful of um, the recent devastation that happened in eastern India, the train crash that now I think is they're saying over 270 or more people have died from that. And um, in the midst of that, I think that's, I, I think of the families um, and the God, we need you now, that they're, they're saying in the midst of that mourning and sadness. And Lord, I ask that we would even be honest about, man, how do we process something like that so devastating yet so far away, but you've, you've, you've called us into a mourning and a brokenness that enables us, the Spirit enables us to do so, Lord, and so we need you now to help us feel that, to understand that, that hurt, Lord. And we ask that you would give us the trust in who you are, that you would give us the strength and ability to sit and lament in the morning, Lord. I think it's often easy to rush ahead, whether it's to point a finger or to make blame, to figure out what happened, and though that's not innately wrong, Lord, I think that there's something you have for us as a people to sit and lament and mourn and be present in that, to remind us that we are in a world that has sickness, that has devastation, that has death, Lord, and, but you have something greater for us to interpret that within, Lord, um, to look forward to. And it's timely that we speak of that a little bit today, Lord. And so I ask that you would just um, comfort the families of those that uh, have lost family members, um, that you would give discernment and wisdom to those trying to help those in India, and that you would give us um, a, a heart like yours, Lord, to lament, to mourn, to pray, to intercede on their behalf. In your name, amen. Uh, good morning, y'all. My name is Aaron Sweeney. Um, I am one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Um, grateful to have the opportunity to preach from God's Word today, um, and also just grateful to be here. Um, the last month in our household, uh, as some or, or many of you at this point uh, might be aware of, has been a whirlwind. Um, so we've had a lot of intense sickness for many weeks in a row. Um, uh, and, and that was followed up by family health issues outside our home that caused um, a lot of emotional and mental strain as well. And so uh, we're done being sick now, praise God. Um, you know, it's, and it, I think it's a unique gift or, or grace of God that in, in the throes of that sickness, 
Um, you don't get to just, we, we, we didn't get to just look forward to not being sick, which is obviously the, the reaction, to not want to be sick, but you also, we also, I think in the midst of that, got to look forward to what I think um, is the real, like, nourishing light at the end of the tunnel, um, being in proximity again with our community, um, the body, like our family here. And so, um, yeah, I think that's being felt. I think, I, honestly, organically, that came up this morning with Manny and got to just acknowledge, like, yeah, I think we aren't sick, grateful for that, but I think just being in the presence of the body, the people that we know and love and care for us deeply, um, is that space we were looking forward to to get back to. And so it's a beautiful grace of God that in the midst of all of it, we get to experience also a unique care and a love from the body. And so um, to some extent, it kind of is a reminder that like God doesn't uh, just show up his grace, his love in specific scenarios that make sense to us, but in all like forms of life and hardships and whatnot, there's something unique that the Lord has for us in that. And so even in the midst of that, we felt a love and a care from, from folks um, that is, I think, unique in that space. And so, so thank you for your prayers, texts, DoorDash, money, etc. cetera. We um, were grateful. We felt loved, cared for by y'all. And that's nothing new. And so thank, thankful to God for this, this local expression and, and all of y'all. So um, with that said, today we are beginning the first part of our summer series in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount uh, is in chapter 5, as we're going through the verse 12 verses today, but just a summary kind of a little bit for the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5 and spans through chapter 7. In this sermon that Jesus, not, not, not this sermon, but the sermon that Jesus gives on the Mount, Jesus identifies himself as the true interpreter of the law in the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, 17 specifically, Jesus remind, reminds his disciples that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. A beautiful parallel as well here with the story at Moses at Mount Sinai, kind of an artistic, creative uh, parallel here is that is as well in the setting and flow of the story. So just as Moses, back in the Old Testament, Moses, he went up to Mount Mount Sinai where God first taught his ethics of the Old Testament law. He went up, received that from the Lord And so also did Jesus, in this sermon, go up on a mount and communicate his new kingdom ethic to his disciples in this moment and would go on from there. And so there's even this progressive nature to the incarnational nature of our God. You see, the act of God to give Moses the law for him to bring down to the Israelites, whereas in the Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus, the God in flesh, the God-man, directly communicating these words to his followers in person. He was tangible. He was there. And so the juxtaposition emphasizing, kind of emphasizes that incarnational reality of Jesus and is a proper theme for our text today as well. And so the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount communicate a vision for a new world, a new kingdom. Sometimes I think kingdom can be a little distracting, so new world's helpful to be like, this is earth, a new earth, a new world that is ushering in. So to which he calls the kingdom of heaven that we see in verse 3 today. And it's a realm that he brings to bear specifically through his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. In his kingdom, Jesus' disciples are meant to not only live with the hope that one day the fullness of his kingdom will be realized, but also they're meant to live with the power, the thoughts, the behaviors, and the beliefs which reflect the kingdom of God. And they are, and, and we are in this instance, to live that out right now 
and we get to live that out right now. In other words, the idea that the kingdom of God is already present, yet not fully experienced or realized. So the kingdom has been established. Jesus is king. Praise God. Jesus is king. That's not something we're up for debate right now or trying to figure out, but praise God, he is king. However, because we're not fully experiencing the kingdom at this moment, our hope is that we will eventually, we will eventually experience it. But until then, we also are graced with the opportunity to reflect that kingdom by reflecting Jesus and his love to this current world. And I, I don't want to gloss over that because that, that grace that God, that the God of this world has to call a broken people to reflect him, his love, and his kingdom. To be honest, at first glance, it kind of seems like a, a gamble, maybe not the safest approach, but um, I think I think of like if you had the ability to do kind of like a biography of your life or an autobiography, but like in video form, you're probably choosing some famous actor that's known, that you know of, instead of maybe um, someone that does musicals at the high school down the street, right? Um, so yeah, like he, he, though, using broken and finite beings to reflect his likeness, his love, his kingdom to the world, as imperfect as that will be, what a gracious opportunity that is. But then it bodes the question, or questions, what, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is it like? How do we reflect it? My hope today is that we can get some answers or clarity on some of those questions and dig deep into what it might be like, what it might look like. And so, read the text again real quick, follow along, find it in your Bibles. Again, Matthew 5, verse 1 through 12 in the New Testament is the first book in the New Testament. So I'll read this for us to hear, and then I'll uh, ask God to help us out this morning. Um, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord, um, you're near. We need you. Help us hear your word. Help us glean from your word to see your face more clearly. And as a residual benefit, Lord, would you um, help us see ourselves more clearly, Lord? And that your word would be both um, convicting and exposing, but also that it would be exhorting, that it would be exciting, that it would be joy-filled, Lord. And that we'd be reminded of your love in the midst of it. In your name, amen. All right. 
So in today's text, we'll look at how it speaks to the nature of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom, and the king of the kingdom. And so with the first uh, few verses, we have seen the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Well, the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God as one in the same thing. In Greek, the language in which much of the New Testament was written, the word for kingdom is uh, basileia. It means rule, reign, or dominion. And the theologian George Ladd defines the kingdom of God as the sovereign rule of God, initiated by Christ's earthly ministry and to be consummated when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We see a glimpse of that in Revelation 11, 15. I'll bring that up in just a minute too, so we'll look at that. And that tells us we take up this space in what's called the inaugurated, what's called inaugurated eschatology. That's really just a fancy way of saying that what will ultimately be fully true when Jesus comes back is becoming true right now. Jesus started something upon his arrival here on earth, which he continues after his ascension by his spirit and through his church. And that will be fully realized when Jesus returns. What Jesus has left us between his first and second coming is a kingdom ethic or a way of understanding the world that waits for us, the world to come, the world we're meant to be useful in seeing established today, right now. And so there's two primary aspects of the kingdom to keep in mind as we move forward with this series in the Sermon on the Mount. First, the entire sermon is really a vision of the kingdom of God. Jesus is painting a picture of what it means to live within his world that is already here but not yet fully realized. And thanks be to God for that. Can you imagine can you imagine if there wasn't, right, right here we can even see the grace of God to give these ethics, to give this picture, to give this hope, and also this responsibility. And can you imagine if that wasn't the case? Jesus left, there was nothing actually to hold on to. Um, my guess would be we'd probably fall prey to our own assumptions. Um, of what we think is probably best or what that world is. Um, And it probably, if we're all being honest, our assumptions probably aren't all the same. So that type of kingdom would be uh, not ideal. And so secondly, the other other thing we'll be talking about is there is a kingdom of this world as part of the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, there is a kingdom of this world. Revelation tells us that one day Jesus' kingdom will swallow up this one. But we get a sense as Jesus speaks that everything about his kingdom is running contrary to another kingdom. The kingdom of this world is that other kingdom. So like I mentioned before, we'll kind of get a picture of this in in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Last book, the New Testament. First, we're doing Matthew and Revelation, just bookends. Revelation 11, 15, go ahead and head there, or you can just go ahead and listen to this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, Jesus came to inaugurate a new kingdom because sin had inaugurated its own kingdom in the garden. This is why, this is why the church, we, 
should study the Sermon on the Mount. It's not only a glimpse into this soon-to-be-fully-realized kingdom that we can get a taste of, but it also speaks to how the world can experience some percentage of that kingdom now. And we have the gracious responsibility of living as Jesus has called us to have that experience, not only for ourselves, but for those that are looking on. And what a grace that is, right? Like, we we didn't actually do anything to get that little taste of what that is to come. It's actually, as a reminder, all of what Jesus had done to enable us to now get a glimpse of what that new world will be like. And so, we look at verses 3 to 10, the character of the kingdom. This is where we kind of look at what's it like? What is the kingdom like? And this is the portion two, some, some maybe have heard this, is the section that would be popularly referred to as the Beatitudes. And so, it's the exact opposite. The easiest way to answer what is it like, it's the exact opposite of the kingdom of this world. That is to say, the people who capture the, ep- the, the ethics of heaven demonstrate in character the opposite of those who capture the ethics of this world. While this world is wrapped up in the powers of self-sufficiency, shame, ambition, pleasure, retribution, happiness, fear, violence, and you can go on, in Jesus' kingdom, people are forging a way that is animated by weakness, tears, humility, righteousness, forgiveness, holiness, trust, and love. So let's just go through them one by one. We have the poor in spirit. So weakness, not self-sufficiency, is the way. The world would compel us to keep ourselves safe, provide for our own needs. In fact, providing for our own needs is so much of an assumed reality that is what is living life successfully or caring that the idea, for example, I think even of, of leaving a job and not having another job lined up is automatically kind of conflated in the that's irresponsible bucket. And don't get me wrong, there's definitely ways in which that can be an irresponsible act. But I think that small little example, from my experience, what the church, we functionally say then, is that there's no way the Lord could call someone possibly to even leave a job because of, who knows, toxicity, abuse, etc. There's unhealth there, right? without having another one lined up. So small example, but something I've actually experienced in talking to people, that that is so out of the realm. Because when we submit to the worldly philosophy that we must provide for ourselves, then we could miss the Lord calling us or someone else into something more beautiful. Maybe harder, though. Do we leave room for, in that example, do we leave room that maybe he wants someone to have to ask the body, right? If we're talking us here, does he want that person to ask the body they're a part of for help with finances, with food, with shelter? I think you can definitely go the worst case scenario route there, but I think it's a small example of just how much we function at times off assumption or off a way of doing life without thinking of what are the motives there? Is this actually true? Is this actually something that the world has instilled in me or is this something that the Lord has for me? But on the other side of that, heaven then teaches us that when we mitigate or ignore our weaknesses, 
that we aren't actually fully embracing our humanity. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10 say, but he said to me, this is Paul, a letter to the Corinthian church, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If we're honest, we've probably heard that multiple times, and um, if we're also honest, we probably don't know exactly what that is, or how that plays out, or what that looks like. And so, I, I find it something of some importance to sit in stuff like that, that is definitely outside a human conception to understand that weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities, <clears throat> when he's weak, then he's strong. And the reality is, it's because we don't provide for ourselves. We are not our own sustenance. The Lord is. And so to act in that way is an act of faith, is an act of trust that, that Jesus is who he says he actually is. So the next one, those who mourn. Here we have tears are temporal. They're not shameful or eternal. This world teaches us that our tears are a problem to be pacified. Heaven shows that tears reveal a truth of our humanity for real pain to be really healed. I'm even reminded of the situation, the catastrophe, the devastation in India. I was reading one of the articles the other day. There was mention pretty quickly in the top of the article about um, who is at fault. And though I, I totally get, like, there's, uh, there's a merit in that and there's helpfulness and there can be closure in that, right? Um, it is so easy in, to take something that's so sad, so sorrowful, so worthy of lament <clears throat> and almost skip over those things, though. Um, and to some extent, I think, you know, sitting in tears, sitting in lament um, to the world isn't looked at as something productive. It's not seen as, you know, healthy or like that you're making steps forward. But the Lord has something in that for us. And as we, we understand, it is a reminder of our humanity, and that is something that the Lord uniquely created. And those first two together, you think weakness and mourning, I can't help but think too about like just, again, another simple example, but experience, things I've experienced in life that I think are, are worth like just taking a, a second to look at. I think of the simple reality of engagement with people, whether it's people you know or you know, you're just the, the classic like, hey, how you doing? And I think about the common exchange with someone and how often that's like, good. You know, that's the response. Either you give, someone else gives, and that's almost, it's been, we've been conditioned for that to be like what that conversation looks like. And I would, I'd argue like in that too, it, it's kind of an easy submission to how society can walk through those things passively and how they can condition us to dismiss those truths of humanity in those moments. Because if we're being honest, most of the time, good doesn't probably sum up everything when someone says, how are you doing? Life's a lot. 
you know? And so I think that's a unique way to step back to realize, am I actually taking a second when someone says, how am I? Am I actually taking a second to answer that thoughtfully, you know? And I know, again, it's a small example, but I do think that for us not to pretend that those small examples actually are, are connected to deeper-seated things would be, would be a lie. And so I think even just the example, and I, and I know in my own life, that's, this is something very personal to me that I realized um, as, as an extrovert and historically a pretty textbook people pleaser, um, doing things like that and saying good and everything in life is great has always just been a normal um, act and normal way of life. I didn't even know anything outside of it. And then come the time when the Lord worked on my heart to show me that, you would be amazed at the amount of taken back or that came with maybe someone asking, how you doing? And me being like, how am I doing? Just that hesitation caused people to be like, oh, oh no. Oh gosh, something must be going on. It's like, no, that's not really the case. I just like, I want to how am I actually doing, you know? Do I want to be vulnerable about my, about my humanity? And so obviously we can talk here in the body, like that should maybe look a little bit different than someone maybe we don't know, a stranger, right? Um, but how, how does that look? How does that function when we see people here and we're talking um, and there's small talk? Do we, do we trust that the body, that Jesus has the body for us to be able to engage in those ways that are more truthful? Are there ways that we function that we don't realize the motive there actually probably isn't one that God has for us? I think the other part that's connected to that, that I just have to, I feel like maybe it's a culturally Midwestern thing, I'm not sure, so don't call me on this. But uh, I like the answer to, uh, how are you doing? And someone's like, oh, I can't complain. And I'm like, no, you can, you know? Like, you can complain. Um, and it's funny, but it also, again, it's a small example, but it really is. So you get conditioned into these modes of life and not realize, man, that conditioning to not even, like, mention, yeah, this is going all right, but actually this has been kind of hard man, that just conditions you to not actually function in your humanity, and that has a toll. So we move on to the meek. Humility, not ambition, is power. To make our way in this world, we learn to boast and keep up. We learn to function as if we're invincible. <clears throat> I say function because we don't, we don't say those things, right? We function as if we have no limits. We function as if limitations are innately bad, a lack of effort, or they're just a sign of a person who's not as effective as the other. And to make our way in the kingdom of heaven is to humble ourselves, to accept that we have limits. We are finite. And then God will lift us up. How often do we just say yes to things because we're just afraid of what they might say of us if we say no, that we don't have the energy, you know, that we are at capacity, that we need space. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If we aren't humble, if we aren't acknowledging, as other parts of this have talked about, that we don't provide for ourselves, we are not our own sustenance, how do we experience the care and love for God? 
go on, it says, those who hunger and thirst, righteousness, not pleasure, leads to flourishing. In this life, pleasure feels like the way to a good life. The more pleasure, the better the life. Sometimes we even get kind of crafty with it. We utilize the idea of pleasure. And it's kind of a nice wrapping paper around the gift box of, uh, that is like escape. Is it pleasure we're seeking or is it, is it escape? How, and how interconnected are these, right? If we, down, if we downplay tears, for example, in mourning, as we talked about previously, downplay those, aren't present with those, we need to pacify those, then we look to something else to help us cope. Pleasure can easily be that, and then can easily be our escape. And in that case, then we haven't mourned. We haven't been weak. And letting the Lord show up in that, letting the Lord love us deeply in that, a dismissing of that takes away the opportunity of the Lord to love and care for us deeply in that, intimately, individually, but also through his body. On the other hand, heaven shows us that righteousness brings ultimate satisfaction. We trust what the Lord has for us, what he has called us to, because there is joy to be experienced in that. The merciful. Forgiveness, not retribution, is our language. It's easy in this world to believe when we are wrong that we're justified to cancel, to ignore, to return evil for evil, to be super defensive. But in Christ's kingdom, we learn that forgiveness frees us from bitterness and the wrongdoer from guilt and shame. Hear that carefully, too. It's not just a one-sided thing. Forgiveness is innately a double-sided thing. We learn that forgiveness frees us from bitterness and the wrongdoer from guilt and shame. In forgiveness, we acknowledge that we're just as capable of sinning as the person we're forgiving. And say the word forgiveness. Words have power. I think forgiveness is another topic that we know of, we've heard about as part of the body. We've talked about it. And I think the emphasis here is that We need to say that word. When we're asking for it, we need to ask for forgiveness. We need to offer forgiveness. If you're you're replacing asking for forgiveness with saying sorry, please change this habit. Don't get me wrong, there are definitely uh, aspects and times that sorry is called for, but in moments where forgiveness is called for, Sorry is actually not the same thing. It detaches the responsibility from us. It can be perceived as a mistake. Internally, we can feel it covertly places act in an accidental category. I know for my own life, with my wife specifically, we've realized that if we hurt one another, that saying sorry is a lot easier than to have to sit and ask for forgiveness. Because in the acting out of asking for forgiveness, there's something we're accepting there.
the pure in heart. Holiness, not happiness, brings ultimate joy. Happiness seems like the centerpiece of the kingdom of this world, at least right now, and maybe historically. It's a reason, it is a reason unto itself. Happiness becomes the default goal for everything. If something is difficult, well, how do we get back to happiness? If I feel happy right now, how do I continue this exact thing so I can maintain happiness? And heaven explains that holiness is the only way to experience real joy. This can be hard because happiness is not innately bad. It's a great emotion to feel. Um, But I think recognizing that it is temporary and that there's something that the Lord actually offers us that is not temporary. It's joy. And it's, in the scriptures too, and joy is mentioned, it's usually mentioned in very, at times it's mentioned in areas that aren't what I think maybe we can relegate it to nowadays. We think joy for the world, or I'm joyful, jumping up and down. But it's mentioned in areas that are hard. I think of Paul talking about finding joy in the midst of suffering. It's lots of juxtaposition of, I think, okay, well, what is that? How do you, what? How do you do that? So I think that's, an ex- that's a great example of showing that like joy, joy is something from our Lord. It is complex. It's not just one emotion. In fact, to be honest, it's, it's kind of the ability and power to experience all of the emotions in light of who God is. It means we can, we can hold on to lament while also celebrating, though that's exhausting, but the power of the Spirit enables us to actually partake in that, and that is joy. The peacemakers. Trust, not fear. Trust, not fear, guides our hearts. The world is all about fear, using fear to control and gain power. Many of us bow the knee to fear every day and don't even know it. And I think this is good to kind of step back from because I think <clears throat> with there are narratives that are easy to go to when we talk about fear um, and instilling fear into people and those are very real, but I think sometimes we lack to get it close to home to acknowledge, like, okay, how, are, how, are we, how am I functioning within that fear, you know? Not is, oh, that, that people group is, or that people group is, or that person's um, causing fear over there, but how do we think internally? And I'd be willing to bet that the majority of people in this room function out of fear at some point pretty much every day. I know that's my own story, if I'm honest about it. I even think, if we just take a moment and think about how we communicate with people. We live, we live in a society that communicates more passively. We're communicating, <clears throat> we're indirect communication is the common mode of communicating. And have you ever thought about how often you change what you need to say to someone because of the fear that you feel when you think about how they could respond? If you don't consciously do this, then I promise you, subconsciously likely, this, this happens. And it's a small thing, and it's not something that's innately, innately wrong, but I think if we, we tested ourselves to realize that are we communicating then out of trust or out of fear? 
Because the, king, the, the kingdom, on the other hand, the kingdom of heaven empowers us to trust the Lord and therefore make peace, make peace where fear rules. So instead of overthinking how someone could receive something and functioning out of fear, we can function as God would have us function. Maybe those things look the same, but the motives are very different and one has hope and one does not. By questioning our motives, we can think about this and it empowers us, it gives us a confidence. Am I communicating this to someone because as Ephesians 4.15 says, to speak, calls us to speak the truth in love. <clears throat> is that what's motivating our words? Is that what is motivating what I'm communicating? Or is what, motivating, is, what is motivating it that it's palatable, that it's not going to produce something that is uncomfortable or inconvenient? Now, don't hear me. I'm not saying every single conversation be awkward, hard, and we should just make everything about confrontation and awkwardness. But... Because of the culture we live in, I think it's something that's worth bringing up because there's, there's a freedom to be experienced even in just how we communicate with one another. And the world will have you trying to just keep <clears throat> the peace. And so I think one thing, last thing in this um, section for the peacemakers to note is that it says peacemakers. The world has, <clears throat> well, I was trying to keep the peace, but God calls us to make peace. It's a very big difference. Keeping peace and making peace are very different. There is an action in making peace, not passivity. In keeping peace, often there can be a lot of passivity. How often do we hear the keep the peace idea in relation to not having a hard conversation? Maybe it's with our family, maybe it's our close friend, and even if it's not the conversation, anything else, we've probably heard that idea of keeping the peace. Well, is that peace actually good? Is that advocating for others? Is that pursuing righteousness, justice, love for our neighbor? Because as peacemakers, it's a call for us to make peace, acknowledging that that means peace is not just there. Lastly, the persecuted. This world is not all there is. This earthly kingdom leads to violence, whether words, whether through words or acts. The kingdom of God, however, continues to whisper to us that this world and this body is not all that there is. Praise God. And I think this is the one of, out of maybe all of them that seems the most far off. If we're present with, <clears throat> in Matthew here, Jesus is speaking to a persecuted people and knowing that the church will continue to be persecuted. So this almost can seem a little more timely then. As the church in the United States, this is something we likely have not experienced or at least have not experienced in the same way as what's mentioned here. And so I think the call here too is to be reminded in those moments where we feel that, great. I would say first and foremost, let's make sure we understand what persecuted means before we throw that around. <clears throat> But I also want to say that this should give us an ability to live freely in conversations or in times where we think, maybe we think the church is, or us, are getting closer to being persecuted. I'm not saying that's the case, but I think what this says for us is that the Lord actually, like, that's an expectation for the church to go through persecution, to go through hardship, to go through suffering. I think 
We don't acknowledge that clearly and explicitly right now. We can function in the way that we are in our context, and it can make us think that being a Christian, being part of the church is supposed to be comfortable. It's supposed to be something that's consistent and content and not ask a lot of us not to be inconvenient. Um, and the reality is you don't see that anywhere in Scripture. It's not, it's not to say that something's coming, but it's not not to say <laughs> that something's coming. It's to say that the Lord is not surprised by this. And if we're reminded when we go back to the weakness, what Paul uh, mentions in yeah, Corinthians, that his power, the Lord's power is made perfect in our weakness. So the end, we got the king of the kingdom in the last couple verses. I'll read this really quick. We'll be done. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus embodies the kingdom through the incarnation. Heaven, nor the kingdom of heaven, is not an ethereal reality. The mystery of what heaven looks like is seen in the face of Christ. All the qualities of heaven manifest in his body, soul, and persona. So we don't have to guess what it is it's going to be like. Every blessed way of the kingdom, as we see here, is demonstrated in the Son of God who took on flesh. And us as the church, as the body, the physical manifestation of Christ on earth, get to reflect these qualities. And it's not just a to-do list of reflecting qualities, but we also get to experience the joy of the Lord in the midst of doing so. Jesus brings the kingdom through his death and resurrection. When Jesus dies, he destroys the power of the kingdom of this world. When Jesus rises, he brings life to his kingdom vision through his Holy Spirit. Because of his death and resurrection, spiritual death becomes the pathway to spiritual resurrection into the kingdom. So we talked about the earthly kingdom, juxtaposed with the kingdom of God, even referring to it as an earthly kingdom can distance it from us. The reality is we can also just read that as our kingdom. If it's up to us, do we embrace the kingdom, the kingdom being, as in the being, Jesus, or do we embrace the kingdom of being what we want? How often do we function in our lives but what we think or what society thinks is right or the best way? to do things. Church, the reason we speak of the scriptures and reading the scriptures and being in them often, talking to each other about it, asking the hard questions, disagreeing on things, it isn't to check off a box to enhance how well we crush it legalistically. There's no hope in that. It's to acknowledge that we, that we are susceptible to falling into worldly ethics, world, worldly ways and action. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, <clears throat> speaks to this. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, <clears throat> and not according to Christ. Y'all, the the philosophies of this world are enticing. 
even scarier, not only are they enticing and there's, like, there's an act in that, but if we passively walk through life and downplay how enticing that can be, they will lull you to sleep. I'd urge you, even this week, just walk through the Beatitudes and sit in each one. Do you, do you have the qualities that Jesus mentions here? Do I, do we have the qualities that he mentions here? Where does this quality show up? Where does it, where in my life do I function passively or off assumption? Ask those questions. Why do I do this? Not because it's to feel shame, but it's because to feel joy and hopefulness and freedom and knowing that like if, if we're doing something and we don't know why, man, the Lord has so much for us to be intentional in the way that we act and we do and we live life. Question the motives of that. Are they rooted in Christ and the kingdom? The kingdom ethic he has for us to take part in because of the spirit within us that we receive because of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension? Or are they rooted in what everyone else does? Again, some of this is active. Some of this is just passive. And so this is just to wake us up and to, to realize what we might be missing and what the Lord has for us. What seems most effective, what is most comfortable, what's the least inconvenient? That would be what the, the world would ask. And don't keep this to yourselves. So this isn't just an internal thing, an individual thing. The beauty of the body of the believers is that we can talk about this. This week at our groups, we can ask these questions. <clears throat> we can confess where there needs to be confessed, but let's be further known by those around us that love and care for us deeply. Because to be able to hear the Sermon on the Mount as we continue forward, to understand it, to see what it's like, to feel confident we can walk in that way, we understand the power of the Spirit within us to do that, and things like the body of Christ that Jesus has set for us to experience His grace, His discipline, His love, His exhortation. Because this is one way through the body, the Lord grows us in holiness and enables us to live out His kingdom ethic through exhortation and accountability through the body. And so would we do that? Would we, would we acknowledge where we've actively gone against it, where we acknowledge where we haven't really thought about it? And would we also be excited and encourage one another in the ways that Jesus speaks of here? But also, can you imagine, church, that if we, in a countercultural, counter-worldly way, acted as such within our communities, just in the way we engage, even with narratives, with whether that's in politics, whether that's in things within your neighborhood, the ability to exemplify the qualities that are shown here. It would be a really beautiful thing. It wouldn't be about winning. It wouldn't be about being right. It wouldn't be about being successful. It would be about love. It would be about care. It would be about mourning with those who mourn. It would be about showing the love of Christ to those around us. Let's pray. Lord, your scriptures are immensely complex and in such a beautiful way. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, you are very clear <clears throat> of what your kingdom, of what the kingdom to come is to look like. But you don't just leave it there. You invite us and remind us that we can exemplify, we can live out those things now to some extent, not perfectly and not fully. Will you give us a glimpse of that, Lord? Would we realize that it's not so much a to-do list, but something that we get to enter into, that you give us the ability and power through your Spirit to enter into and to experience that joy, Lord? 
it is so easy to fall into what is typical or what is normal, depending on what context we're in, Lord. And so I ask that you would get us excited to know that even on the days where we feel we are doing well, Lord, that you have so much more to offer us still for us to experience. Is an overflowing fountain, your grace. And so would we live in that? Would we mourn in that? Would we be weak in that? Would we be glad in that, Lord? And would you work in us? to be a small part of, of, of your kingdom coming to realization in our world, even now. In your name, amen.